0: episode today is Marketing Made Me Do It Literally, the foodie episode. And so today we're talking about the things that marketing makes us do and makes us believe as consumers, as people within the society. And we're focusing on one of my personal favorite topics, food.
1: (laughs) Who does not like food?
0: I bought a pair of shoes that I didn't need same ones I saw on my Instagram feed. My feet hurt real bad and my bank account's dry. I made a bad decision
1: and I don't know why. Some people may say I blew it, but marketing made me do it.
0: Welcome to another episode of Marketing Made Me Do It. I'm one of your hosts, Sydney Bingham. I'm Sylvia Dieter. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, Marketing Made Me Do It, we're a new podcast that aims to teach us as consumers about how marketing impacts all of our lives and everyday decision making in order to empower everybody to make the best decisions with their money. Do you have anything to add, Sylvia? No, I like it. Lovely. All right. So before we dive into our topic, we always like to start the episode just a little bit more conversationally. So, Sylvia. What is new in your life? What has marketing made you do?
1: Great question. So I've been thinking about this for a little while, as I feel like I say every time we record. (laughs) So I got hooked on a subscription called Book of the Month. Actually, you hooked Mm -hmm. me on that subscription. I was an influencer. (laughs) You were (laughs) totally an influencer. And for those that don't know, it's a monthly book subscription, and you pay a certain amount of money, and you get a credit in return, which you can use to purchase a book. And they always have featured books of the month, and it's a great variety of different genres. And what I really like about this book subscription is that it broadens my horizons. I typically Mm -hmm. like to, you know, read one specific genre, and for me to branch out, I really have to be interested in the synopsis, and so. Anywho, July's book of the month, there were actually a couple books that were quite interesting, but I also did not really spend a lot of time reading through what they are about and so on and so forth. And so because I wanted to choose the book because I wanted to obviously get it and read it, I literally made the decision based on the cover. (laughs) I chose the prettiest cover, in my opinion. (laughs) It's a fantasy book that I, I got, so I couldn't even tell you the author and or the title because... I was so focused on the book cover, and that marketing is what made Mm -hmm. me choose the book. I can tell you maybe next time how good it was. (laughs) I
0: think I probably, I'm a member as well, so I think I probably chose the same book as you. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, because I I always choose books based on the cover. I
1: feel like you can learn a lot about a book based on what the cover's like. For sure. And you only have so many seconds, really, to to catch Mm -hmm. one's attention. And so the cover needs to emotionally or visually uh, appeal or connect with you in one way or another. Yeah. So let me know how that book goes. Yeah. You got to let me know if <laughs> it's the same one. We need to think of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Sydney? What, uh, what's new in your life? Or what did marketing make you or didn't make you do?
0: Yeah. So the last couple of weeks we were in San Diego and we went to a brewery called Stone Brewery. And going to the brewery and then thinking about what I was going to say on this podcast made me think about... Um, a marketing campaign that they had a few years ago that really stuck with me. Basically, Stone Brewery, they're a popular San Diego beer, they are famous for their IPAs. And they did a campaign a few years ago, that I noticed as a marketer. And basically, what they did is they flipped their labels upside down on their cans and their bottles. And it looked like just a mistake, like I got a bunk bottle, <laughs> you know, my <laughs> bottles defective. if somebody on the assembly line wasn't paying attention. So it totally looked like a mistake. So I asked my husband, like, why is this label upside down? What are they doing? And you know, him being a, a big beer person, a big beer drinker, and a fan of stone, he was like, yeah, they're doing a, a marketing campaign. And it's called every stone unturned. And so that to me was really interesting. They They basically did a marketing campaign That I think intentionally looked like an error so that people would Google it. And I know that's how I behaved. I like immediately was looking for more information about why my bottle was upside down. (laughs) Upside down. (laughs) And so that then reminded me of like the Kia new logo where you have people searching for KN car. What is that? Mm -hmm. Because the new Kia logo, if you don't know, looks a lot like a KN, not like a Kia. And so To me, it's just really interesting how sometimes marketing campaigns are made intentionally to look like mistakes, but in reality, they're just really impactful because not only do they get someone to pay attention, remember it three years later, they also get someone to take that next step of like Google searching and figuring out what's going on.
1: Yeah, I love that. I just opened up the link that (laughs) you shared and it's brilliant. And also, I feel like the messaging never let a stone left. What is it called? Never? Every stone unturned.
0: Every stone
1: unturned. Which I think
0: is a play on the, like, leave no stone, stone unturned. unturned. Yeah, that's yeah. where I was
1: getting at. That's where my mind went immediately, mm-hmm. is, like, never let a stone unturned. So, you know, chuck the bottle. Or not chuck mm-hmm. the bottle, but, like, you know. Yep, because if you raise flip the it
0: upside down and are drinking and chugging the bottle, then it's it's right side up. Exactly. So That's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant, but it, like, makes you think that it's just a flat-out error. So that's what I think is so brilliant about it. And you'll see, you know, in marketing... What I've noticed is that sometimes the whoopsie, we made a mistake emails outperform the emails with zero edits. And so sometimes just an FYI to our listeners, sometimes (laughs) in marketing, we make mistakes or make things look like a mistake intentionally to get you to question, why is my bottle upside down? What is (laughs) KN?
1: What is KN?
0: Yeah, I feel like we should definitely do an
1: episode on that Kia brand. Mm -hmm.
0: It's really interesting. Now it's three years later after that campaign, and I still just remembered it. So it was really an impactful and successful marketing campaign. That's amazing. That's a good segue into our episode topic today, Marketing Made Me Do It, the foodie edition. Sylvia, you and I have talked about a lot of different things that marketing has made us do. And so we've talked about making this an ongoing series because there's so much that marketing impacts, even within the food world, that we don't have a chance to talk about on this episode. And so, first I wanna start by, you know, how do you know if marketing made me do it? For the purposes of this episode, we're defining marketing made me do it as something that creates a demand versus something that addresses a specific need. An example that I have is, you know, water. We all need water. If we didn't have water, we would, we would die in a few days, three or four, depending on the weather. It's really hot right now. So I gonna say (laughs)
1: in Arizona. Yeah,
0: we've got about a day. Uh, So water is obviously a need. But if you go into the store or a gas station to buy water, you have the choice between fresh mountain spring water or charcoal infused water or electrolyte infused water. And so that choice is the marketing influence that is creating a demand with consumers. And so the marketing campaigns behind these different water brands are basically then creating their specific demand with, with customers. Yeah, so the first topic is lobster. And to be honest, I can't claim credit for coming up with this idea. One of my favorite authors, Jason Pargan, he had a TikTok reel go viral recently and he was talking all about lobster. And so I'd kind of heard about lobster and and how it's a marketing thing before coming up. And bringing on this episode, so I just want to give him credit. Um, some other sources that I have are Business Insider, Insider.com, New Yorker.com. <laughs> Everyone's done articles on lobster. I'll start off with a quote from again, my favorite author, Jason Pargan. He said, and this was controversial, he said, I don't think anyone actually enjoys eating lobster, I think they've just been convinced that it's a high class food for a really specific reason. So Sylvia, I want to start off by asking you,
1: honestly, do you like lobster? I do. I do honestly like lobster if there's a lot of butter. I like the butter side of lobster (laughs) as well.
0: (laughs) History of lobster. Let's go. Let's dive into it. Um, Lobster in the 16 to 1800s was considered a poor person's food in the United States. It was actually used as fertilizer. But it was also a great source of protein. And so because it was cheap, servants, inmates, you know, workers were really fed lobster a lot. So much so that servants, as a condition of their employment, insisted on not being fed lobster more than three times a week. They were like, we're done. Three times is the max that I can eat this cockroach of the sea. That's what they called it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Lobster became popular when the railway system in the United States exploded. And the reason was it was so available in coastal regions within the US that when the train system started up, the train workers decided to serve lobster on the train because it's cheap and affordable and widely available. But the passengers on the train were just exploring this new food for the first time because they didn't necessarily grow up in that area where lobster was really popular. And so for them, they felt like lobster was this exotic delicacy. And so the demand for lobster grew really because of the popularity and accessibility of trains. Wow, I had no idea. So as always, you know, demand increases and the price goes up because the supply goes down. And so that's just common economics 101. Also, people started realizing that lobster was best cooked fresh. And so, you know, we cook lobster when it's alive, which is why I've never cooked lobster. (laughs) And I will never (laughs) cook lobster in my life um, because I, I have... I just, it hurts my heart. It would mm-hmm. hurt my heart to do that. But yeah, lobster is, does taste best when cooked fresh. And so the taste of lobster became better, but also the logistics required from catching to storing these live lobsters increased. So the price went up. That makes sense. For all of those reasons. Demand, logistics, etc. And the funny thing about lobsters is that even when supply is plentiful, lobsters are cheap off the boat, lobsters are still expensive in restaurants. And so, why do you think that is, <laughs> if you had to guess?
1: If I had to guess, I would probably say it's because it has that perception of, it's it must be expensive, it's lobster. If it's not expensive, how good can it be?
0: Yep, and you're spot on with that guess, <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> so, economically speaking, lobster is less of a commodity than a luxury good, and so it's been promoted as a luxury for many, many years. And that leads to a lot of psychological factors when you start to think of something as luxury. It doesn't really matter how expensive it was wholesale or the cost of the supplies that went into it. Once it's a luxury good, there's a perceived value that consumers have. And so, you know, one interesting thing to think about is if restaurants were to lower the price of lobster because they're getting it for super cheap, that would be weird as someone dining at the restaurant to see lobster on sale, essentially, compared to
1: tuna or
0: chicken. Yeah, (laughs) you always expect lobster to be the most expensive thing at the restaurant. So even when supply is high and there's tons of lobsters available, they're super cheap for the restaurants, they're not going to drop their prices. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to perceive that their lobster is less good than other restaurants lobsters or less good than their chicken. Right.
1: Yeah. That's fascinating. I had no idea about the history that it was first I always just have known it as a luxury good, as something mm-hmm. special, we're treating ourselves to a lobster night. Mhm. I I always do look at the
0: menu and I look at the lobster and it's like, "Oh, I wish I could get that." Like s- lobster and steak. What is that called? Surf and turf. Surf and turf. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could get surf and turf. But Then I always, you know, you never, especially if someone else is paying, you never want to get the most expensive thing on the menu. So (laughs) then I, like, go down to the chicken level. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) But I always base the cost of, well, how expensive is this restaurant really off of
1: that lobster, that high-priced item? Yeah. I can also see that part of that. And I know we're going to dive more into food, obviously, given that this is the foodie (laughs) edition. But um, I also... Think that a lot of the pricing of the menu items is also dependent on the actual restaurant, because I'm sure, yeah. similar to Apple, you know, we pay a lot for the brand name Apple. There are restaurants out there that just charge ex- extremely mm-hmm. ex- extreme amounts of money for a lobster, and it's oh, yeah. just
0: because of their brand name. Mm-hmm. And so then you think about well, the costs that they're paying, the margins that they're making, really don't have a lot to do with how they're pricing at least this specific item and then expense is linked to enjoyment so if you're buying something that's a luxury like a luxury lobster there have been studies that just prove that your enjoyment levels go up because you're buying something that is expensive and so that's just kind of common knowledge is that you know consumers if they have an option between cheap and expensive, they won't necessarily always choose the cheap option. And sometimes price, regardless of quality, is that deciding factor. They wanna choose the
1: expensive option, the elite option, something that speaks to their personal branding. Totally, something that aligns with their personal brand identity.
0: So yeah, that's the, that's the history of Lobster. Fascinating story. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I'm excited to
1: hear what you have. What's up next? I'm going to bring the rebrand of the potato, at least in Germany, to the table. I'm not sure if you're familiar, and this might be something that maybe not a lot of Americans are familiar with. But there is a legend that the potato was actually rebranded in Germany. And so in Germany, every German uh, citizen consumes a total of 59.4 kilograms of potatoes, which is about 131 pounds. Wow. At least this is based on the 2020-2021 fiscal year. Thank you, Statista. So that's a lot of potatoes. Let's leave it at that. That's like a third pound a day. It's a lot of potatoes. It's a (laughs) lot of potatoes. Do you have the American average? I sure do. So in comparison, the average American eats 120 pounds of potatoes each year so slightly less but kind of it's up there you know Mm -hmm. it's very integrated in our daily cuisine and uh, in Germany as well we eat it salty we eat it sweet I remember my grandpa he even like when we had just boiled potatoes after dinner he would make a little snack out of it and he poured a little bit of sugar on top very strange (laughs) sugar yeah I haven't tried that would you recommend I've tried it I it wouldn't be my (laughs) dessert of choice, but (laughs) I would say give it a try. But we do eat potato sweet. Like we have potato pancakes, Mm -hmm. if you will. We eat with sweet potatoes, sweet potato pie. Are you
0: including sweet potatoes? No. (laughs) Those are yum. Well, yeah, no. I mean,
1: within the statistic, I'm sure sweet potatoes are included since there are over 5,000 different potato. Oh, wow. Variations out there. But side note, really quickly, I did, did want to mention that, that Americans do eat uh, almost double the amount of potatoes than they eat lettuce. Wow. I'm not surprised by that. I mean, almost Neither every meal,
0: you've got your meat, your starch, and then your vegetable. Your vegetables. Totally.
1: So yeah, there is a legend. And from a German perspective, we most likely would not be eating as many potatoes if it wouldn't have been for Fre- Frederick the Great of Prussia. Hmm. Frederick II of Prussia, also known as Frederick the Great or locally, casually Old Fritz, introduced the potato to the Kingdom of Prussia back in the 18th century. For those of you who don't know, the Kingdom of Prussia was a German kingdom that constituted the state of Prussia between 1701 and 1918. Throughout the 18th century, a famine, fam- famines, F- famine. Is- F- famine is how we pronounce it in America. Okay, famines. <laughs> Famines had ravaged Europe, which led to a lot of starvation and people actually, you know, not having enough food to survive. Mm -hmm. And big components of this famine was a combination of multiple harvest failures. It was a rapid increase in prices and a rapid decrease in purchasing powers due to wars Mm -hmm. and battles happening. So with the increase in food prices and him wanting to feed his battalion and his people, Mm -hmm. he recognized that he needed a solution to feed his people and to keep them nice and strong. Yeah. And so one of the ways he thought to feed his people was to introduce the potato to the Prussian people. And up until then, uh, potatoes were primarily fed to the animals, to the pigs. Mm -hmm. And so... It was not something that people jumped on. They mm-hmm. did not want to grow the crops. They did not really wanted to adopt the potatoes into their diet. You know, they looked dirty. They had no taste. And they ended up resisting the growing of Got potato it. plants. And believe it or not, he actually had potato orders to make people grow potatoes. That's
0: the- Oh, he had to like subsidize the potato
1: growth. He actually like put... I don't know, laws, but like orders into place to make people, yeah, to make people grow potatoes. But even that was fruitless. And so the way he thought to bring potatoes to the people and for them to adopt it was actually pretty smart. So he actually took the plants and had them spread in his gardens Mm -hmm. and actually had people patrol the plants interesting to kind of rebrand them rebrand the potatoes to be a luxury royal Mm -hmm. food and they were patrolling like stay away from these potatoes exactly (laughs) like do not touch the potatoes but Mm -hmm. he was not he was again based on the story he was telling his Guards to turn a blind eye if somebody were oh. to steal a potato plant.
0: So they like walk over in the corner and have a conversation. And, and meanwhile, everyone's like, oh, well, let me get up
1: these potatoes. Yeah, let me get one of those potatoes. Mm-hmm. That's so clever. <laughs> so yeah, he rebranded the potato to be a royal potato. And that pretty much instantly made people want it. That right? makes sense. Because it's mm-hmm. luxury. It's something that old Fritz is eating. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, before too long, you had a whole lot of potatoes growing in Germany. And people started actually adopting the potato into their diet. And um, from Frederick the Great's perspective, you know, it's kind of smart to identify, like, if something's worth protecting, yeah. it's worth stealing. So, yeah, that um, that's the rebrand of the potato in Germany. And interestingly enough, people uh, supposedly still... Thank him by putting potato on his grave in his, oh, wow. by his castle, Sanssouci. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. So I feel like that's
0: one of like the highest honors you can only hope to achieve is that someone will put potatoes on your grave.
1: Yeah. Even a couple hundred <laughs> uh, years after. Yeah.
0: A <laughs> uh, well couple. Done.
1: Yeah. Next up, we're going to talk about gastrodiplomacy. Sydney, can you tell us a little bit more about what that is?
0: Gastro diplomacy. One word. Do you, do you know gastrodiplomacy? No. It's also called culinary dis- diplomacy. And so just a quick snapshot into our lives. We live in Flagstaff, Arizona, and we're a town of like just over 70,000 people. We're northern Arizona, so we get four seasons. And our population, we're mostly white, some Hispanic, um, some Native American, but mostly white. We have, for our population of 70,000 people, we have seven Thai food restaurants. We get one Thai food restaurant for 10,000 people. One Thai food restaurant per weekday. Yes. Yes, one every weekday if you like Thai food. And I do like Thai food. Thai food's my favorite kind of food. But I'm not well-traveled. I've shared that with you. I haven't left the country. And so my experience of Thai food is through Thai restaurants. And I've just noticed as a consumer that there are a lot of Thai restaurants, especially when you start looking at the population. It's not like Flagstaff has a little Thailand where there's a lot of people from Thailand. Totally. So that made me do a little research when I was thinking about this episode. I was just like, well, why are there so many Thai food restaurants? Well, why why is that? (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to tell you about that. So that's where gastro-diplomacy comes in. My sources for this topic Uh, are Wikipedia, love Wikipedia, vice.com, foreignpolicy.com, hubspot.com, and uscpublicdiplomacy.org. So those are my sources. Okay, so I'll start with the basics. You know, what is culinary diplomacy or gastrodiplomacy? And that it's a relatively new word, a new term. It's been used since the early 2000s and has been popularized by the work of believe it or not, a public diplomacy scholar named Paul Rockower and Sam Chapel Sokol. So I'll be quoting Paul Rockower for this episode because he speaks to this topic quite a bit. All right, so gastro diplomacy is based on an idea that I think everybody's familiar with. And it's that the easiest way to win somebody's heart and mind is through the stomach. And I think we've all experienced this on a personal level. So we're taking that concept and we're bringing it into international relationships. So, gastrodiplomacy is when a country has a marketing campaign that's focused on promoting the culinary aspects of that country. The countries that you'll find that have these gastrodiplomacy marketing campaigns are countries that just have a hard time getting noticed on the global stage. So they maybe don't have a huge economy like the US, they might be smaller, and they just they want to appeal to the global population. Again, through the, through the stomachs. They want to win over the hearts, which makes total sense. So I want to start off by talking about Thailand. Thailand, again, seven Thai food restaurants in a small little city like Flagstaff. And Thailand was the first country to actually launch a formal gastro-diplomacy program. And so I feel like they really set the, set the tone, set the goals for other countries who followed in their footsteps. So I think their marketing campaign is Brilliant and innovative, and you can tell that by how many countries are starting to follow in their footsteps now more recently. And so, Thailand started the Global Thai Program, it launched in 2002 and it was a government led culinary diplomacy initiative. Its goal was to increase the number of Thai restaurants worldwide by about 3,000 restaurants. Wow! So how how are they going to do that? Well, they, they just wanted to make it as easy as possible for chefs and restaurateurs that are Thai to open restaurants abroad. And so basically, they put forth like three different templates for a restaurant, like a, an affordable, a moderately priced, and a prestige Thai restaurant. And they helped restaurateurs and chefs launch these packages across multiple countries. The US is just one of them.
1: And so it means, like, they actually sent Thai chefs from Thailand to the U.S., or did they, like, help teach Americans how to cook Tha- Thailand? thailand Thai. Thai.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they actually sent chefs and restaurant tours to nations abroad. The U.S. is just one of them mm-hmm. to open restaurants, and they gave them assistance for t- obtaining visas, and they also supported these restaurants financially. All because, again, they just wanted to promote Thai food across the globe. And they also taught these chefs and they had a program all about teaching um, these restaurateurs about opening a restaurant in an abroad market. So obviously, the American palate is different from the Thai palate. And like, what do you need to know about the American palate before you start opening in a restaurant there? Totally. So they offered a ton of support and when the program was launched in 2002, there were about 5,000 Thai restaurants globally. Today, there are more than 15,000. Wow. <laughs> so they they really achieved their goal. And, you know, who start thinking about like who is the target market for this type of campaign? And, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was tourism mm-hmm. because if you're promoting a culture's culinary initiatives and and food, I mean, at least I am one that I can count multiple trips I've taken within the U.S. that have been based around food.
1: Wow. Yeah. And I also feel like if you're tasting a cuisine from a country abroad, it would make you more likely to want to travel mm-hmm. there and to actually experience it with all the, all the senses.
0: Yeah, I think so, too. And that's actually why I started thinking about this concept, because I started listing, like, where would I visit? And I know my husband and I have both said while we're eating Thai food, like we want to go to Thailand because we love the food so much. And so I definitely think they've won our hearts through our stomachs. So next time you're eating at a Thai restaurant, just, you know, consider that maybe it was created as part of this global Thai program to familiarize
1: us with Thailand. Yeah, that's fascinating. Are there any other countries that stood out to you? Yeah. So the other one that stood out to me is more recent,
0: and it's South Korea. Um, And I think it's because I love South Korean food as well. So (laughs) the two countries I chose, there's like, there are at least 20 that have started some sort of gastro diplomacy program. Mm -hmm. So um, South Korea, I feel like is really blowing up in the pop culture within the United States. We have um, K-beauty that's really popular now. We have K-drama, K-pop. I feel like South Korea, the culture is really very big in the U.S.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, really quickly, because I don't think I've eaten South Korean food before. What What is South Korean food? Have you eaten kimchi?
0: No. <laughs> oh well, kimchi is the basis of their their program. So clearly, when it comes to you, they haven't they haven't quite captured you yet. You're just <laughs> a potential. You're in their target market, but you're you're on the fence. So. They did a lot of things differently than Thailand, and so that's why I wanted to bring them to the table. Thailand's global Thai program was really based on expanding the number of Thai food restaurants globally. That was their number one goal. For South Korea, it's different. They want to, number one, promote South Korea as the mother country of kimchi. So in the U.S. in 2021, their kimchi exports was approximately $160 million. Dang. Dang. So in 2009, the South Korean government launched the $40 million Korean Cuisine to the World campaign. And how does that relate to kimchi? Well, a part of that was the government created the World Institute of Kimchi in 2009, the same year. So the Institute's mission was to drive the growth of the kimchi industry through, quote, technological development and to establish the status of South Korea as the mother country of kimchi.
1: Huh.
0: I just learned something new. Yeah. So if you go to the grocery store, buy kimchi, and it's probably not an accident that you know about kimchi, like I do, <laughs> and that you're learning about kimchi like Sylvia is. <laughs> it's probably there because of this Korean Cuisine to the World campaign. Some other things South Korea did was, and I think this next one is brilliant, is they sponsored US colony courses at Le Cordon Bleu and the Culinary Institute of America. I think that's brilliant because you're teaching up and coming chefs how to you cook your cuisine. So even if they're not South Korean, they might serve South Korean food in the restaurants or at least
1: some infusion of Infusion, it. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, I agree. That's brilliant. So what's the what was the goal of the campaign that they launched?
0: Yeah, so the goal of the $40 million Korean Cuisine to the World campaign, unlike Thailand, to just... Create a bunch of restaurants. Their goal was to be ranked higher on. I'm going to kill the pronunciation. The Anholt Ipsos Nation Brands Index, aka the NBI, which I'm going to say from now on. (laughs) What is the NBI? Well, I didn't know when I started doing research. So the NBI looks at each nation's reputation along six dimensions of national competence. So they look at exports, governance, culture, people, tourism, immigration, and investment. And then they rank countries one through however many countries there are. And so um, South Korea in 2009 was ranked 33rd, I guess there are 50 out of 50. And I just wanted to shout out, guess who's number one on this NBI? I don't know who's who's number one? Germany. What? Germany's number one. So, congratulations to our German (laughs) listeners. (laughs)
1: That's Um, interesting. I had no idea.
0: Yeah. So, South Korea at the time of this campaign, this culinary campaign, was thirty third. And so, the goal was to move up to fifteenth place on the index by twenty thirteen. So, in four years after initiating this campaign, how did they do? Well, they currently rank twenty third. So, they moved up ten places. Not bad. I feel like that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, that's Yeah, and so what's next for South Korea as they try to rank 23rd? Well, the Korean Food Promotion Institute, they did make a note that Japan, who also has one of these gastrodiplomacy diplomacy programs, they've branded their food as high-end, clean, fancy, healthy. Thailand's branded its cuisine as down-to-earth, and so that's South Korea's next goal is to create a brand around their specific cuisine that is more expensive than kimchi. Mm-hmm. Now I have to go and try some kimchi. You have to. It's so good. Is it? Mm. Yes. So anyway, that that is gastrodiplomacy. If you're eating food from another country, maybe just consider that there might have been a huge marketing campaign that brought that food to your stomach. A purpose behind
1: you. To influence you. Which brings us
0: to really the conclusion, you know, which is marketing is always influencing us, it's always influencing our society. And sometimes you just have to get really curious about why you're taking certain actions to understand the impact that marketing is having. Yeah. But once you're aware, you can make stronger decisions. So some questions that I kind of thought of that, that might help you become a stronger consumer or a more empowered consumer is... Number one, what drove the demand behind your decision to make a purchase? Is it because it's scarce? Is it because it's it's luxury? Mm -hmm. What drove that demand? Who stands to benefit from your purchase or your advocacy? In the last example, it was Thailand Mm -hmm. or South Korea. Potentially, you would be a tourist there or you would just know more about the country. So you'd be less likely to be on the side of going to war with them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Another one is, am I giving something value just because it's expensive or am I giving something value just because it's scarce? Those are really
1: great questions, Uh, even just to learn more about yourself and Mm -hmm. your current state of decision making and what influences you every day. Well, to dive into next week's topic, I feel like we already had a semi-preview today. We're going to dive into scarcity marketing. We're going to talk about what it is exactly. There are definitely different kinds of scarcity marketing that are used in everyday marketing. And literally, open your Instagram, open, (laughs) open your, I don't know, Facebook feed, or just be on Google and hop on a website, and you'll most likely see some sort of scarcity marketing. And so, will we be talking about diamonds? Maybe. Maybe. Most, we haven't recorded yet, so. We haven't recorded yet, <laughs> most likely. So, yeah. Be excited. We, we are. I am. <laughs> Me I don't know. too. Are
0: you? <laughs> There's, I mean, again, it's another one we could do. Ten episodes on scarcity, so we're excited to launch and give the introductory episode and see where we go from
1: there exactly i feel we're scratching the surface with a lot of these episodes just Mm -hmm. to prepare us to dive in further so yeah follow us on social media if you haven't already subscribe and review wherever you get your podcast new every thursday and we'd love for you to join the conversation at marketing made me do it over on instagram so Drop us a comment, a like, a follow. We uh would appreciate it. We would love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. Oh yes. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
0: Friedrich Friedrich. You can say the German way.
1: I like I like the German way. It's like Frederick, Friedrich, Fritz. Who would you say? Frederick. Fre Frederick. <laughs> I'm just gonna keep it cash and say old Fritz. Freddy boy. (laughs) Our Freddy boy.